Hello and welcome back to Homefront with Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Benjamin, hello to you. Hello, Gedalia. The big story today is whether or not the ceasefire will be extended for a few more days to allow more hostages to get out. So I, I think I have to reiterate the kind of line that I developed over the last couple of episodes, which is that human emotion is a very, very powerful thing. I'm on a WhatsApp group which deals with security questions in Israel and whoever it is who runs the WhatsApp group, and this is for people who are interested in peacetime as well and security talk, put up on these, you know, debates or, or polls, you know, should it continue or should they get back to fighting? I mean, predictably, there was no response for the side saying that we should stop this hostage exchange and get back to fighting. Because once you've seen the scenes of human emotion, as we said yesterday, those cute little boys and girls running to their parents or just sobbing in hospital rooms, who has the nerves to come along and say that we should stop this, given that it's so clearly far from over and that it's unclear what an extra couple of days fighting is going to be. At risk of repeating myself, but again, in a relevant juncture, I think that as long as Israel is really going to be the hands of Hamas to decide if they had enough over here, when have they paid enough lip service to the Qataris? And that dynamic will dictate that it's not really in Israel's hands, it's really in Hamas's hands, as way I see it. And I think that's unfortunate. If I were uh, in the war cabinet, I would recommend that Israel renegotiate the deal and tell Hamas, fine, if you want to extend the ceasefire, that's good. But what we thought about one day for every 10 people, that's not good for us anymore. We want all of our people out and we'll give you X number of days if you need to gather them or get information on them. And when I say X number of days, I mean a very small amount of days, no later than the end of this week and insist that all the hostages get out. And we need to put uh, American pressure and whatever Qatari pressure is on Hamas in order to do that. And then after we get all of our hostages back, then we can decide how to continue the war. I mean, but continuing, it seems that at least in terms of Israeli leadership, we've had Yoav Gallant in Gaza a couple of days ago. We have Bibi in Gaza yesterday. They repeat again and again, the war is going to continue as soon as this is over and that they're going to go into South Gaza. And, and obviously, the, Israel's worried public, which is the audience. But beyond that, it's the White House and the rest of the world that's the audience for this, trying to say, do not get comfortable, do not settle into the ceasefire. This will not be over because it can't be over because we've just simply not achieved our goals. Israel has a long way to go to achieve their goals, that's for sure, militarily. I'm just not sure that the battle is going to continue after whatever ceasefire ends or after the hostage release is either completely over or mostly over. It's very nice what Netanyahu and Gallant are saying, but I honestly don't trust them. I think that there's a lot of pressures on them and it's not clear at all to me that they're going to be able to get the momentum back and restart the military campaign, especially if the bulk of the hostages get out. My feeling is the international community will say, yes, terrible things happened on October 7th, but we think you've exacted your share of revenge, you've done your share of damage, and you've gotten most of the hostages out, so let things go. We'll just carry on negotiations like we always do for prisoner releases after war ends, and eventually all of the other hostages uh, will come out. I think there's a, a real risk of, of that occurring, whether that's uh, for the good or not for the good, so that remains to be seen. But uh, I think that's a highly likely scenario. There's also a lot happening politically in the background, which uh, could influence that. And beyond, we're going to get into the politics. And I think that it's just worth stepping back and noticing 
Remember who's around that decision-making table. We have uh, Netanyahu, who's got his share of experience, obviously vast experience in international affairs, security issues. He was Mr. Security until he lost that halo on October the 7th. But around the table, you have a lot of senior brass and former military men. Oh, we just mentioned Gallant, whose defense minister was. Uh, but you have on the other side, in part of the war cabinet, you have Gadi Eisenkopf, former chief of staff, and you have Benny Gantz, former chief of staff. And what we're hearing is an interesting split, which has been that Gantz and Eisenkopf have been less verbose about the continuation of the war and talking more in terms of long term, that there's kind of like a generational struggle over Hamas. And therefore, playing into how quickly should this prisoner's exchange go ahead? It seems to me there's two different frameworks for how to understand what's going on over here. Because on one hand, you have Galant saying, this has to be done quickly. It's now or never. It's international pressure. And the others are saying, no, this cannot be done quickly. It will take months, possibly years. It's a long, long struggle. If that analysis and breakdown is correct, it kind of falls out neatly politically. Because the people who are in danger of losing their seats in the next elections are saying, let's do, get this done quickly. And the people who stand to gain from another election, Gantz Eisenkart, are saying we have time. Does that make sense to you as a breakdown? No, it doesn't make sense to me at all. But I am happy to hear and see that our differences of opinion among the military men, there should be, and uh, this should be debated. What I think is happening right now is I think that uh, the war cabinet is starting to crack open in terms of unity. In the early news conferences, when Netanyahu and Gallant and Gantz appeared, they were all wearing black shirts. If you notice, the last news conference they had, Benny Gantz was wearing a light blue shirt. So that, to me, already was signaling his break with the unity of the war cabinet. And we saw that play out because he was the one who came out and said that the hostage release has now become our highest priority, and he's won. That's actually uh, what's happened. The second thing that's happened is something I don't want to go into in detail, but we know today the government is going to discuss uh, the passage of the budget in a special wartime budget. And there's a big controversy over what was called the coalition funds and whether all of the coalition funds, meaning... Basically a slush fund. I'll just use an American term. Yeah, the pork barrel. <laughs> it doesn't make sense in Israel where pork is not kosher, but uh, I think most of our American readers will understand the concept of pork barrel spending. Except for, I do want to say that uh, some of the coalition funds are also uh, intended for teachers, mainly in the Haredi sector, to equalize their salaries with public school teachers. And a lot of the schools have already paid them in advance, and they desperately need that money. Well, uh, I, I can to, uh, say firsthand, I know the school system over here in, in Beit Shemesh, I know there's teachers who just simply haven't been paid simply because of the vagaries of this system in which Haredi schools are set up to get by coalition funds, not by the education ministry. So it's not just kind of pork barrel politics, it's literally bread and butter for teachers and for the school system. That needs to be straightened out. And Benny Gantz is the one who came out and said that uh, if the vote goes ahead on the budget today and it includes coalition funds, then I'm going to vote against it. And then we'll see what the consequences are for the government. So uh, that's already a threat. Uh, Netanyahu said that uh, he's going to uh, introduce the budget anyway. And he said there's plenty of money to finance the war. Bitsalo Smotrich has also been insistent that at least some of the coalition funds remain intact. Hopefully that'll include the money for the teacher's salaries. But again, we do see that uh, Benny Gantz is uh, starting to challenge Netanyahu. I think uh, Gantz is also encouraged by the poll that came out uh, in Channel 12 over the weekend, showing that if a new election were held today, that he would win by a landslide. 
he'd win 36 seats, maybe over 40 seats. Likud would crash to 18, and that the center left. It's an earthquake. Yeah, the center left would win 70 seats, and the present coalition would crash down to 45. So if I were Benny Gantz, I would say, yes, we have plenty of time because time is on his side, politically speaking. So he'd be very happy to have a new election, take over as prime minister, and say, okay, now I'm going to run the battle against Hamas my way. Can we move on to across the oceans here in Israel? We've got English style weather, lots of gray skies and rain. So let's just take a look at what happened yesterday in London. Because the big story out of there was that on uh, Sunday afternoon, a march protesting the anti-Semitism in Britain took place, and it was historic numbers. According to some, depends who, according to police estimates, there were over 100,000 people there. Now, I think it's very significant. They were protesting the atmosphere of intimidation and fear that has come about, facilitated by the police in these massive pro-Palestinian marches that included displays of Arab anti-Semitism, and it's a big story. Now, I just want to focus on a couple of the headline numbers. Number one is 100,000 people. So now if you compare it to the march in the rally in Washington a couple of weeks ago, the Jewish community over there, we withdrew something like 300,000. But if you look at the disparity in the numbers of the British and American Jewish communities, American Jewish community numbers in the five, six million, whereas the British Jewish community hovers slightly under a quarter of a million. So if I have 100,000 people out there means that this is a register and a mark of how very threatened Jewish people felt. Obviously, there's a large number of non-Jews as well. But, but again, just talk about the numbers. Britain has total population of 64 million. The US has over 300 million. So this is very, 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 very significant numbers. And, it, and it's a sign of just how worried Jews feel. As Malcolm Hohenlein told me, his conference of presidents, director Malcolm Hohenlein, told me in the wake of the American march, this is the march in which expressing the fact that for the first time, US Jews feel very, very nervous themselves about the anti-Semitism. How much more so in England's place where anti-Semitism is so much more rampant, the left is so much further to the left, the left is so much more powerful. That is the case. That's one number, but I'm moving on from the numbers. I just say, note the kind of eye-rolling predictability about the reports. If you look at something like the Telegraph, the Telegraph I quote often over here, which is centre-right, broadsheet, you have estimated 100,000. Whereas The Guardian, or as it used to be known because of its sloppy journalism, The Groundyard, The Guardian reported 60,000. So I mean, there's kind of eye-rolling predictability about the whole thing here, which they're trying to downplay it. But and I will note that The Guardian also predictably draws a reference to the 1936 Cable Street March. Does that crop up in American law? About 20 years before my time, but <laughs> carry on. What? I wasn't asking you if you were that old. So the Battle of Cable Street was when the British fascists, led by Sir Oswald Mosley, used to march through the heavily Jewish east side of London, which was a basic equivalent to the lower east side of New York, heavily immigrant, heavily Jewish. And they would try and bait the Jews. And they were called the Black Shirts, so very, very threatening. You can see terrible sights to, to, to witness. But then in 1936, I think it was the Shabbos, there was the Battle of Cable Street, and it's gone down in left-wing socialist law, because it was then that an alliance of Jews and socialists, I think Irish laborers, beat up the black shirts and stopped them marching. And it broke up basically the effectiveness of the black shirts and the fascists in England. All there is a history, Benjamin, I think it's very, very important because The Guardian naturally says that this is the biggest march against anti-Semitism since the Battle of Cable Street. But notice what's changed in the meantime. The left which kind of goes on about the history of anti-fascism and anti-racism and the way it stood up for the minorities. The left is the problem today, right? The left, led by outlets like The Guardian, is the source of the problem. And the right, which was the problem then, 
we have around the world today, you have people like Ed Wilders, the, the Dutch leader, who's a far-right leader, just been elected pro-Israel. So everything is totally inverted. To, but the headline is that the Jews are very, very worried, and the left is the source of those worries. I'll just add one thing to that. Many years ago, when I interviewed uh, Shanad Shigedi in Hungary, he's the fellow who was the head of the neo-Nazi party there, until he found out he was Jewish. And uh, we were uh, fortunate enough to be uh, the first major mainstream media outlet that got a full-length interview with him. I remember that. That was quite something. It was quite right. a story. And then I followed up a couple of years later, and I asked him, based on his experience in the European Parliament, the EU Parliament, as well as in Hungarian politics, what Jews needed to be afraid of more, the far right or the far left. And I assumed he would say the far right, having come from the far right himself. And he said just the opposite. He said, that uh, the biggest risk to the Jews is going to come from the far left and not from the far right, and that we have to be watchful for that. And I think he's been proven correct over the years. And I think that's also playing out to an extent in America also, where you have uh, a very radical far left and a very radical far right. And they're very influential right now, both in Congress and in the upcoming election. We're going to see their influence as well. So this is something that we have to be watchful for and also hopeful for that the center made up of people like the ones we see who marched in Washington and who marched in London will be able to bring some sanity to all this and things will settle down and calm down. Thank you very much, Benjamin. Wish you and the listeners a good day.